Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll continue our study of Herman Melville's Omu. In the 200 pages that we've already studied of that book, the narrator was picked up in the Marquesas by an Australian whaler. After undergoing hardship, he joins with the crew in resisting the captain and his drunken first mate. As condition worsened, the ship sails for Papate in Tahiti. There they are sent back out by the council, who does not want to deal with the mutineers. Shortly after, they return to the, sh- the crew in open rebellion. The crew is then forced to spend several weeks in an English jail near, pa- near Papate. It is severely low security, and they are relatively free there. Eventually, our main characters, the castaways Taipei and Dr. Longos, decide to leave Papate, taking a job on a potato plantation. In the final third of Omu, our heroes find new work and a new life on a sweet potato plantation in the Society Islands. The plantation is run by two western castaways named Zeke and Shorty. They run the plantation in a fairly informal fashion, recruiting other castaways and deserters as they can. As almost the entire western population of the Society Islands is some form of work resistor, or a person in authority, it is an interesting band of people they put together for a common purpose. Some islanders aid in the plantation as well, most notably a man named Tonoi, a chief of fishermen living nearby. Part of Taipei's job turns out to be going hunting for wild cattle. And through this hunt for wild cattle, we're treated to a nice snapshot of the environmental history of the Pacific Islands, as we learn how Australian animals arrived. They were brought over on Vancouver's Pacific expeditions. I think it was sheep and goat and cattle and maybe some other animals. The sheep died out, but the goats, and especially the wild cattle, prospered. Melville does not provide much detail on the the evolution of these animals on the society islands, but he does compare it to a more well-documented ecological and economic case study in Hawaii. In Hawaii, the cattle spread into massive herds that the islanders began to hunt and exploit for their hides. Their efforts were admittedly awkward, But then the Spaniards from California came and brought over more detail on the craft. Within a short period of time, the cattle herds were almost destroyed, and the king had to place a taboo on hunting cattle. And with this, their efforts shifted to the hunting of goats. During the cattle hunt, Taipei, Tonoi, and Zeke passed an abandoned village, and we get an ominous memory of how European contact devastated the islander populations. I think this probably can be compared to the devastation of of the animal populations and the ecological transformations that we've just witnessed. Tonoi remembers that the town used to be well populated when he was a young man. Another heavy cost of the encounter is immediately added when Tonoi tells of how Tahitan raiders attacked the village because it had converted to Christianity. And they attacked it not directly, but through some kind of economic warfare girding the bark of many of the fruit trees. And that is why there wasn't much breadfruit in the region at the time that our narrator got there. These depressing tales are followed up by a successful hunt which produced two cows and a wild boar. The, the, the characters celebrate a hunt with a feast. And then the next day is Sunday and Taipei explores the area, including the town of Afrahito, which includes a missionary community and a church. And we see how deeply the missionary influence really has gone in the Society Islands. We learn of other Westerners raiding potatoes, raising potatoes, and how islanders regularly steal from the crop at night. So it's the Westerners who raise it and the islanders who raid them. With the cattle interlude completed, the castaways complete the potato harvest and deliver the produce to the docks for sale 
um, to ships bound for the Papete market. Now, while the planters were eager to keep the duo there because they worked hard and they had some skills, especially Long Ghost, nevertheless, they committed to leaving their job at the potato plantation for um, a better future. While their escape from the potato plantation was not as dramatic as their near mutiny that led to their imprisonment or their escape from the English jail, this is still the third act of flight so far in the novel, the second time our heroes essentially quit their jobs. And then if we add the escape from from the two escapes in Taipei, we have a long list of such rejections of work or, or relocation throughout these two novels. They decide to go to Tamai, an inland village reputed to, reputed to have the most beautiful women of all the nearby islands. What strikes our narrator about the island is hopes that it will be the most uncorrupted by Western influence and the corruption of mil- missionary culture. They prepare to visit the village by first dressing in some local style clothing. When they get to Tamai, they find that their hypothesis is correct. The inland populations are healthier, they're more prosperous, the women are more modestly dressed and, quote, far fresher and more beautiful than the damsels on the coast. There is certainly European contact. They are nominally Christian, but the influence seems to be pretty slight. Taipei and Long Ghost witness a joyful dance that gets Long Ghost fairly excited, but the women reject his clumsy advances. And there's kind of a running joke in the book about how Dr. Long Ghost tries to, to hook up, if you will, with the local Tahitian women, but never quite has any luck. They discuss settling down in Tamai, but their plans are disrupted by a group of Westerners trying to locate and arrest vagrants. We have already seen how numerous the deserter population was on the Society Islands, and what a potential problem they posed to the authorities in Papate, and now we see that this problem has produced itself as an old industry of trying to hunt down these vagrants. They decide to escape to Talu, a sugar-producing village. It has a nice harbor, um, and they're hoping that there'll be day work there. They also hope it will provide broader opportunities. They believe that they can meet the queen who owns the plantation and maybe find their way into her service. As the narrator explains, it was not uncommon for foreigners, both black and white, to find their way into the court of Polynesian kings and queens. It's a rather fascinating section here. This is page 575 of the Library of America version. Quote, upon islands little visited by foreigners, the first seaman that settles down is generally domesticated in the family of the head chief or king, where he frequently discharges the various functions, the functions of various offices, elsewhere filled by as many different individuals. As historiographer, for instance, he gives the natives some account of distant countries. As commissioner of the arts and sciences, he instructs them in the use of the jackknife and the best way of shaping bits of iron hoop into spearheads. And as an interpreter to his majesty, he facilitates intercourse with strangers. Besides instructing the people generally in the use of the most common English phrases, civil and profane, but often are the latter. These men generally marry well, often like Hardy of Hanamanu into royal blood. Sometimes they officiate as personal attendant or first lord-in-waiting to the king. In Amboy, one of the Tango Islands, a vagabond Welshman bends his knee as cupbearer to his cannibal majesty. He mixes the morning cup of arva with the profound genuflections and presents it in a coconut bowl richly carved. Upon another island, the same group, where it is customary to bestow no small pains in dressing the hair, frizzing out by a curious process into an enormous pope's head, an old man of war's man fills a post of barber to the king. 
As, he, as his majesty is not very neat, his mop is exceedingly populous, so that when Jack is not engaged in dressing the head instructed to his charge, he busies himself in gently titillating it, a sort of skewer being actually worn about the patient's hair for that special purpose. Even upon the Sandwich Islands, a low rabble of foreigners is kept about the person of Pamahanaman for the purpose of ministering to his ease or enjoyment. Well, there you have it. Sorry for the pronunciation of these names. I, I do my best. Um, but there it is. There, these Westerners desert and they get enter the courts of these local kings, intermarry, and, and become part of the Pacific, part of Pacific history this way. Now, the largest risk facing them is still being arrested as vagabonds. So Taipei and Long Ghost return to the potato farm and get Zeke's help in securing some fake papers. Essentially, they want, you know, like a little piece of paper that says, you know, these guys are working for me. They think this document should be enough to at least scare off some of the islanders who might try to seize them for the bounty. And they decide to travel to Talu by land by following the beach. And this path takes them allows them to take advantage of the hospitality of various islanders on the, on, the, on the island. The narrator is especially impressed with the village of Luhulu, which, like Tamai, was largely untouched by Europeans. On the way, they also run into a hermit named Varney, who has a large collection of contraband. They enjoy a night there, but need to suffer through some poor quality liquor. The book begins to take on more of an episodic and at times surreal nature, that Mel and Melville's going to pick this up even more in Marty. Uh, Taipei begins to call his quest a, a hijra, you know, referencing the hijra of Muhammad. He compares the landscape to a fiery desert. It, it gets a little bit weird from time to time, and he goes from isle, uh, village to village, meeting other people. They eventually make their way to harbor in the village of Partui. There they see a western ship called the Leviathan, crewed by more Euro-American vagabonds. Partui is heavily influenced by the west. It has a large and well-maintained chapel, and even has adopted English criminal justice proceedings. In one memorial scene, Taipei observes the trial of some of the members of the Leviathan. Taipei and Long Goose Ghost do find some hospitality among the local people, but when they try to enter into the court of the queen, they are turned away. It is a rather lackluster ending to the novel, but it works, once again because our hero must move on to a new location. And in the final chapter, they decide to sail out on the Leviathan, and this ends the novel. And I simply love that this novel ends with a failed job interview. Um, how many novels end that way? Um, I can't think of any others. So Omu is all in all a wonderfully fun tale. Now, if Taipei was about the islanders, Omu is about the vagabond sailors, the castaways and deserters who populated the more exposed and colonized parts of the Pacific. The word Omu, after all, refers to a Polynesian word for these vagrants. It is one of the sharpest literary texts examining the complex and contested interplay between the classes and the power of collective and individual resistance to mistreatment and exploitation. I recommend it for all of the stories. Nearly every one of the 82 chapters has an interesting anecdote about the people of the colonial Pacific. My only criticism would be that the novel does not really have a clear narrative thread, but we're going to have to get used to that for when we open up Mardi. Well, now's the part of the podcast where I'll conclude a work by, by listing some of the major tropes and themes and ideas that stand out in a particular work in the hopes of eventually working towards a master list or kind of a master index of the major themes in American writing as I see it. The first of these themes would be work and work resistance. This theme runs through basically every page of the novel. 
it's touched on Taipei, but it really stands out here in Omu. But this, but it goes beyond simply a desire to quit one's job. The fundamental restlessness drives the novel's narrator. This restlessness accelerates towards the end until the narrator is almost constantly on the move, barely allowing the reader to know where they even are from point to point. In fact, let's almost put that down as another theme, restlessness. Is this a reflection of a part of the American character that conquered the West at the expense of native people? Is Omu a lightly hidden metaphor for the conquest of the American continent? Uh, I don't see why not, or at least I don't, don't see how that couldn't have been part of Melville's thinking when he wrote the story. Another theme is empire and its enemies. As with Taipei, Omu is a novel about the evils of empire and empire's tendency to replicate the worst aspects of the dominant culture on those it dominates. The major institution of this corruption, at least in the two books by Melville here, is the church. Um, but there are others as well, such as commerce and capitalism. And he hints a little bit here in Omu that the church may actually mitigate some of the worst aspects of these other influences, such as just commerce and trade. In the latter part of the novels, much of what's driving the narrator is a desire to find the most untouched parts of the society islands. Before doing so, he takes steps to dress the part, hoping to hide his European identity. If he takes his character as if we take this character as the same one that appears in Taipei, it is striking that in the first novel he desired to return to civilization. But by the end of Omu, he is desiring to leave it. It is therefore not surprising that the only place for him at this point in the story is, in fact, the sea. While Melville returns to America, Tomu, or Taipei, as he's known in this novel, or Taji, as the sort of the same character will uh, transform into in Marty, cannot and will drift, cannot return home and will drift throughout his time in the Pacific. The last words of this novel is, Quote, before us was the wide Pacific. The last words of Marty are, quote, the endless seas. Sorry, spoiler alert there. <clears throat> now, another theme here is the vagabond. Now, this one is connected to themes already mentioned, so I won't say much more about it. Uh, but the main character of this novel is the Western vagrant of the Pacific Islands. And we'll run into the vagrant in future episodes. To this day, the hobo is an American archetype of the restless vagabond. Um, and he certainly had a big role in, in American history as well. Um, in fact, thinking about it, there's a, a, a movie I saw a trailer for being released soon called 13th, which is about the 13th Amendment. Um, and while the 13th Amendment ended slavery, it allowed forced labor for um, the punishment for a crime. And as many historians have pointed out, this led, this kind of opened the door to the p prison industry um, system, which heavily targeted African-Americans in the South, many of whom were arrested for vagrancy, essentially not being employed. Okay, anyways, moving on. Another theme would be sexuality and sexual repression. This theme is, is certainly shared with the same theme in Taipei, but in many ways it's considered more directly here in Omu. There's no explicit sexuality in the novels. It is hinted at throughout. Melville thinks that European and American colonialism has corrupted the sexuality of the people of the islands. This extends to our heroes, and Dr. Langost, at various times, becomes enamored with these islander girls and tries to seduce them. And that's just uh, what you want to make of that. I guess up to you, but there it is. Um, alcohol. Um, I was wondering whether I should put alcohol here as a theme, but thinking ahead to other works we're going to read, such as you know Jack London's John Barleycorn. And, 
And the fact that one, at least one historian has called the United States an alcoholic republic, I, I thought it's worth putting in here. Um, it's missing from Taipei. Alcohol is really not there in that novel at all. Um, he spends all the time on an isolated area and doesn't have access to this liquor. Um, but in Omu, it's spent almost entirely in contact zones, and therefore drink is plentiful. There is a type of low-grade liquor on the ship, what was it called, Pisco? But in French Polynesia, the drink of choice is brandy and other fortified wines, I guess. Um, drunkenness is used to comic effect, and alcohol is a major facilitator of working-class solidarity in the novel. It's actually part of the pranks and the games they play in jail is alcohol. Um, class, another theme. Um, Melville states in his book, as he will in Moby Dick, that often people in positions of authority can't look people under them in the eye and therefore have to resort to financial power, the law, or just brute force. We have examples in this work of working class solidarity and resistance. The sailors have their own institutions. They have their own methods for policing their members. They have their own culture that's, that's made clear by the retreat of Dr. Longos to the forecastle early in the novel. The depravity of the powerful is also on display. The people in charge are a mixture of drunkards. They're often ill or petulant or just brutal. I mean, there's really no optimistic images of authority figures in the book. Um, I mean, that's mitigated a little bit in Mardi, where we actually spend a lot of time with a king and authorities talked about more directly. So the, the final theme I, I want to highlight here for Omu is freedom. Uh, it's perhaps the most important one. When we ask what the Omu, the, these foreign vagabonds, were after, it seems a bit reductive to say just freedom. It, it's freedom's one of these terms that everyone has their own view about. And certainly that's true in American history. You know, even the British during the American Revolution pointed out how silly it was for slaveholders to talk about freedom. Now, Melville certainly never puts it this way directly that his characters were seeking freedom. And it's such a slippery word. Um, but I want to suggest that the structure of the novel suggests a path from tyranny and imprisonment to freedom. The characters spend the first part trapped in a ship. And Melville spends a lot of time on that ship and really nails home how brutal and confining and just miserable it is. And they might must fight for a voice there. And when that fails, they are imprisoned. They fight the boundaries of that prison and break free to become explorers and seek their fortune. They don't find it. They're rejected by the court of a Polynesian queen at the end, and they have to venture off to new adventure, for new adventures. It, it's kind of an optimistic ending at the end. It's like, even though they failed, there's somewhere else they can go, and the Pacific is wide open to them. So with that, let's set aside Omu and crack open Marty. I'm going to do that one a little bit different. I'm going to br break slightly my rule of 100 pages per episode. It's a rich book, um, but I'm not sure I quite have a grasp on it enough to do f six episodes, um, even though it's 600 pages. So I'm going to aim for about four. But with a little accounting trick, a little rounding, I can still say that I will be reading Marty about 100 pages at a time, starting in the next episode. Well, thanks for listening to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Feel free to contact me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share. That's the best way I'll have for really building an audience and, and getting more um, hits. We're going to start a great adventure in the next episode as Melville goes a bit wild with it in Marty. <laughs>